totally football show totally at the World Cup. They're creating a singularity that will consume the planet. How long does the planet have? Minutes. Unbelievable, unbelievable this. Day six, easy peasy, Japanesey, as Samurai Blue give Colombia mighty blows, something Colombians will know all about. Meanwhile, stereotypes ahoy as Polish go plumbing the depths with Senegal. And Tuesday evening, home nation believing in Chichezov as Russians all but put their place in the last 16. Wednesday, we'll see Uruguay have a go at Saudi Arabia, then Group B is back. Portugal against Morocco. And what are Iran's prospects against Spain? We'll get the view from uh, Toronto. It's all in Totally Football Show at the World Cup. And here we are, everybody, with your panel today. Uh, Michael Cox is here. Hello, James. We've got Duncan Alexander. Hi, James. Welcome, Duncan. And Sasha Gurionov. Dobry vecher, James. Yeah. Sasha, it's so good to have you here. We've just seen Russia uh, victorious once again. There's wrong, and then there's your pre-World Cup predictions (laughs) about the team you described as the worst in Russian history. What have you got to say for yourself? Uh, so I'd say that I'm delighted to be so spectacularly wrong, and I think most of uh, Russian journalists too. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I'm still trying to calm down after watching that, but another really clinical and very professional performance from the Russians, which it, for me, again, is completely and utterly unexpected. Mm-hmm. I know that um, after Saudi Arabia, it was very tempting to write it uh, to write it off because Saudi Arabia was so bad but today against Egypt who really had to win this game Russians actually were very very efficient mm. um, and they managed to control I think the first half reasonably well the last 15 minutes before halftime were a little bit more scary but the way they came out for the second half established a three goal lead and they pretty much saw out the game even though I have to admit I got massively nervous when Salah uh, pulled back the penalty but those last 20 minutes Russia weren't really in trouble at all Yeah, they were regarded as kind of the, the, the football underclass but they've completely overturned the social order and but entered a whole new paradigm They, they also overturned uh, three decades of uh, almost abject failure uh, in, in the face of a lot of scepticism at home and I think this team was under a lot of pressure before the first game the pressure that was lifted by that great result and today you know to see Russian players smiling when they're playing football like Zuba was like Samedov was in those closing minutes really really enjoying themselves it's, it's, it's absolutely great uh, Duncan I need a stat to help me process what's going on here yeah I think to put it into context Russia uh, have now scored as many goals in two games at this World Cup as Spain did in 2010 in the what? entire tournament when they won the tournament so when Spain were world champions tiki-tastic Spain in mm. 2010 yeah, already in... this Russia have scored as many goals as that they have and they've equaled the most by host nation in their first two games with Italy in 1934 so it's re- pretty unprecedented really I mean it, it's surprising but when you look a bit deeper, it's really, really surprising. <laughs> <laughs> well, three goals this evening. Uh, the first, uh, a fatty uh, own goal, the shot from 
Sasha. from Zobnin, uh, one of the two sort of diff- more defensive midfielders. But again, it's, it's the Zuba factor. Um, I said before today that I probably would have rather gone safer with Smolov, but this is what Zuba does. It's just a big unit up front who puts himself about. You called him a tree. He is a tree. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, he's a tree that can be extremely efficient. And right. um, as, as we saw today, I think um, the first fatty mistake is the fact that basically Zuba is all over him, um, right. just putting him off, well, literally off balance. And the way Zuba took the third on his chest is big, classic centre-forward play. Um, and um, again, the celebrations, um, he, he's a guy who is uh, very outspoken uh he with him basically you know he doesn't um he doesn't act he's just himself all the time duba and he is um i i think this the sort of joy with which he plays football uh i think the joy um the way he grabbed his chance with both hands because he wasn't the starting center forward before before the tournament I have to give him a lot of credit for it because also i think there were sort of frictions with the manager as well historically you know he wasn't um there was a while where he was out of the team because him and Chichester just didn't get on. And the fact that he, with his, his big ego and his big personality, managed to sort of work his way back in. You know, he's more, perhaps more of a diplomat than uh, people give him credit for. And World Cups historically have been, you know, there's been a, quite a few examples of strikers coming in, you know, not being first choice, but becoming that during the tournament. You think back to Jeff Hurst in 66. Toto Um So maybe, you know, he's the 2018 version. Perhaps so. All right. And uh, the middle goal... Another from the very lovely uh, Chirisev. What's special about him, Sasha? He is not in the Panini sticker album, I believe, uh, which puts him alongside the great Igor Belenov in 1986, the, uh, <laughs> the, who won the Golden Ball that year, by the way, who went on to score four World Cup goals uh, in the 86 World Cup. Incredible. Michael, what do you think? Sasha has already caved in and has started believing in this Russian campaign. What, what do you think? I think you think they've played very well the, the first two games and... Um... They don't look to be playing under any great pressure, to be honest. Surprisingly, obviously, they are under great pressure, certainly ahead of the first game. But uh, they look relaxed and composed, and the attacking midfielders who are good on the ball are showing that. And, um, you know, as you say, they've may- not got lucky, but they've had a couple of players like Cheryshev and, and Zuba who've come into the side. And mm. um, it's just all clicked, hasn't it, at the, at the last minute, incredibly. As you say, incredibly, because there was no sign of this... Um of this clicking in any of the games leading up to the tournament. There was, you know, s- small defence of myself. I did uh, mention in my preview that it was absolutely baffling to me that this midfield, which is potentially full of decent players, just could not seem to be able to play together uh, before the World Cup. And now suddenly it's all fallen into place. And also, um, Chochesov was getting out of stick for not picking Igor Denisov. Um, again, slightly mouthy um, uh, Defensive midfielder gone with Gazinski uh, from Krasnodar, for which he got a lot of criticism again, and it worked out very well because that midfield looks really, really balanced. Sasha, you must now be beginning to think about who you want to face in the last sixteen, and a big question here, I'm guessing, is going to be goal difference. Now you're, you're eight four one against. So it must be with trepidation that you eye up tomorrow's clash between Uruguay and Saudi Arabia. I still think Russia would do very well to get anything out of the Uruguay game. Um, because um, I think we could see in the first game Cavani and Suarez was a bit off colour, but those two um, can cause this Russian central defence a lot of problems. I mean, the Russians packed it today, but Cavani um, will be more of a threat than anything that Saudi Arabia offered or or indeed the half-fit Salah that we saw today. Sasha, with the greatest respect, your, your predictions are worthless. <laughs> <laughs> worthless. Hold my hands up. Duncan, have you got another stat about this incredible Russian side? Well, just to kind of illustrate the the fact that 
I guess you could say that everything is sort of going their way at the moment. I mean, they only had three shots on target in that game. Obviously, an own goal. And then they scored with two of their three shots on target. And a similar story in the, in the first game as well. So this is very much what happens in World Cups. It's such a short, you know, maximum seven games. You need the luck. You need things to go in for you. And that seems to be what's happening for Russia so far. How long it lasts, you know, we'll we wait and see. Right. Because Uruguay don't look exactly irresistible. Uh, they're taking on Saudi Arabia tomorrow and will no doubt be looking to boost their goal difference there. Just a, the one goal in their uh, in their opening game against Egypt. And Suarez in, in particular facing criticism for his uh, for squandering chances, Michael. Yeah, the first game he didn't uh, didn't look sharp enough, but I thought Cavani was excellent just behind him. Created two great chances for Suarez. Had another long range effort that was saved. Uh, had a free hit the post. yeah uh, hit the post from a free kick, I think. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Uruguay win that comfortably really I don't think Suarez's struggles will continue I think against that defence uh, it'll be his 100th cap as well so he'll mark, he'll mark yeah so mm. he'll want to mark it with a goal or two indeed Duncan uh, Saudi Arabia as you've no doubt read coming into this game a little bit shaken up their flight to Rostov featured one of their engines of, of the plane catching fire after being hit by a bird yeah, they were saying scenes. that apparently somehow it didn't catch fire, even though there was a bird in the engine. But I don't, I'm, I'm not quite sure how it engines just work. just in, the plane didn't catch fire. <laughs> yeah. So they were claiming right. afterwards, even right. though there was footage of it catching fire. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure how this works, to be honest. I don't know either. What, what could it have been? What looks like fire but isn't fire? Don't well, know. quite a few things. A producer Ben's waving at me to move on. So just since we're on the subject of confusion... Something that has been vexing a lot of people on social media, Michael, yep. has been this notion that when you're celebrating a goal, and we saw this <laughs> with Kieran Trippier, you can't have all the players off the field because a sneaky opponent would kick off and would be legally entitled to kick off if all your players were off the field and could therefore just sweep up field, a bit like Senegal did uh, this afternoon against yeah. Poland. Yeah. Um, is that true or not? I'm just there's there's no enough. sign of it in the laws of the game, so I'm quite perplexed about this because the footage does look as if there's a deliberate attempt to keep one man on the pitch. Yeah, and it's not just England. Portugal did it as well. Yeah, that one looked particularly blatant with the penultimate man gesturing for someone to stay on the pitch. I can only think that there's some kind of directive that involves something slightly more complex about excessive celebration or something, but there's nothing in the in the laws of the game. And it would be absolutely... Absolute carnage if that was allowed to well, happen. The, the suggestion is that if all your players have left the field, yeah. the opposition can kick but off. The, the laws of the game says every player must be in their own half of the pitch. Right. So what you really have to avoid doing is running to your own half and celebrating excessively because then the opponent can kick off. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. So Tuesday's action then seeing Russia continue their success at this World Cup with a 3-1 win over Egypt. Elsewhere in Group H, Senegal came up with a, an eventful 2-1 victory over Poland and Japan were 2-1 winners over Colombia in Saransk. And let's move on now to that game, a game which was greeted with scenes like this in Tokyo. Japan, of course, have been beaten 4-1 by the Cafeteras last time they met in the World Cup. What a different story it was this time. I spoke to our friend Ben Maxwell from the JTalk podcast at the final whistle. I'm stunned, to be honest. Certainly wasn't expecting this. I don't think anybody uh, who's a, uh, a dedicated supporter of the Samurai Blue would have either, but they obviously got handed the, the perfect start, literally with uh, Carlos Sanchez getting sent off uh, in the third minute. And... 
from there, I guess there was a little bit of frustration at the at the way the the first half panned out because it was a real opportunity, obviously, for Japan to ram home the advantage, and they didn't. And a uh, a very dodgy refereeing decision aside, and some dodgy uh, keeping from Eiji Kawashima aside, they probably can't have too many complaints to have gone in uh, level at the break, despite uh, yeah the uh, the gift they were given at the start. But yeah, good old Yuya Osako, hey, he's headed in, and um, yeah, I don't know. Well, you you tell me. I, I think Japan have just stunned the world, haven't they? Well, absolutely. And the way the other match has gone, there's every chance you could take control of this group. To be completely honest, this was probably the the one that Japanese supporters were dreading. Obviously, we we have uh, uh, memories of uh, Cuiaba in in Brazil in 2014, the 4-1 loss in the uh, the last group stage game, and yeah, memories of you know we've we've been hammered with um, Hammers Rodriguez highlights throughout the last few months of the uh, the European season, and everybody's been panicking about what Colombia were going to do to Japan. Well, Japan just turned them over and it's definitely in Japan's hands and it will definitely go to the last game anyway, if, if uh, regardless of what happens against Senegal. All right, Ben Maxwell from the JTalk podcast. Japan, huh? Uh, Josh writing in to say, interesting to note that in the Japan game, Carlos Baca was called by his number by Japanese commentators because the name Baca is phonetically similar to the word moron. <laughs> like Kevin Moran. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Who saw this one coming, Michael? Well, I didn't. Uh, no, but I mean, it was massively influenced by that early incident, which led to a, a penalty and a red card, which you don't see that much anymore because it has to be a, a kind of cynical, uh, yeah, either a cynical foul or a deliberate handball to stop the ball going to the net. I actually thought Colombia played quite well. I mean, considering they're down to 10 men for 87 minutes, I thought their performance in the first half um, was excellent. They took the game to Japan. They were without Hammers, who's their best player. Mm. They were without Carlos Sanchez, who got sent off. And then uh, Peckman made an interesting decision to take off Cuadrado and put on a, another holding midfielder to kind of stabilise the game. And I thought they did really well to get back into it at 1-0. Second half, they dropped much deeper and, and didn't attack so much. And I think that was actually the right strategy because I think they would have been completely overrun playing 10 against 11 for the whole game. But I thought the centre-backs had a really, really uh, poor game, both of them, but particularly Davinson Sanchez, mm. who's had such a good season at Tottenham, but made the mistake for the first goal and just throughout was constantly getting turned by uh, a couple of relatively average uh, Japanese forwards. So, yeah, he got turned for the first goal, which a Kakawa shot uh, was uh, basically... It, who, it was Carlos Sanchez Carlos who Sanchez, stuck yeah. his arm out and then Kagawa put the put the penalty away and Sanchez had been sent off. Quintero's free kick to equalise, a, a very clever one. Yeah, it looked like it was something they definitely researched and planned for because um, he hit it along the ground and the ball jumped up and it went under um, and went over the line and the Japanese keeper protested. I mean, there was a bit of debate about whether he was protesting whether it should have been a free kick or not or that it hadn't crossed the line, but the, the goal line technology clearly showed it had. Right. I have a problem with Kawashima's dive there because I think he should have comfortably got there, yet he seems to have lost his goal line, basically. And uh, I, I will put it down to goalkeeping mistake, actually. I thought Radamel Falcao had an outstanding game, actually. Okay. I know. Obviously, he finished on the losing side, but I think when you get a man sent off when you're playing that 4 2 3 1 formation, everyone goes to 4 4 1. What you basically need your forward to do is play a little bit as a number nine, a little bit as a number 10. And a lot of people have criticised Falcao for his kind of lack of all round game. People said at the last World Cup that Colombia were better without him, but I just thought he was brilliant with his link plays, hold up play, and more than anything, his ability to win free kicks. 
Mm. Several of which were definitely not free kicks, including the one for Quintero's goal. But, uh, you know, it, it clearly meant a lot to him to play at the World Cup. And there was also that funny incident before the game where the referee seemed to misunderstand what Falcao wanted having won the toss. Did you yeah. see this? Which... Um, Obviously, didn't cause too much of an issue, but I've never seen that happen before in in football. Basically, the teams had to swap sides. Well, Falcao clearly won the toss, yeah, and then the teams lined up as they were, and then just as they were about to kick off, when the stadium did the countdown thing, Falcao suddenly waved in the referee's direction and said, "Actually, I know I wanted to." Sw- I wonder if it in. was the sunshine because because the pitch was extremely illuminated on one half. And, it was, and and, the and when you look at it, uh, Ospina um, was then defending the shady side of the pitch or the right. more shady side of the pitch but that was peculiar I can't work out whether he changed his mind or whether there was some communication breakdown but it was very odd Hamas Rodriguez did return to the side in the second half so there's that Colombia with the way the results have gone and with factoring in the Senegal-Poland game as well it, it's still wide open this group isn't it it's really open I mean this was the most open group I mean all the sides had a chance of going through and it's even more open now because you had two um, surprise results with Japan and Senegal winning so all to play for. I think this is the most interesting group in the tournament. And of course, it's from this group that England, if England qualify, will, will, will take their next opponent, Duncan. Yeah, I mean, a couple of little lines from this game are quite good. So going into the match, Colombia uh, had played the most games at World Cups without ever having a red card. Um, obviously, that's now come to an end. And the team that was taken over from them is Japan. That's quite wow. Nice. And Japan, that was their fifth win at a World Cup, which means they've now won more than Scotland. Just let that sink in for a second, Sasha. Uh, uh, Sasha, what caught your eye about that Japanese win? Princess Takamado uh, in the stands. Uh, she becomes the first Japanese royal to, fi- to visit Russia in 102 years. Really? Yep. Back in 1916, Japanese royals were visiting Russia to you know, sign treaties and uh, you know, exchange arms, sell cruises and stuff like that. Uh, so it's quite, quite a historic moment. Wow. Excellent. What do you make of, if moving on, if I may, what do you make of Japan's chances against the other, for many people, surprise winners of Group H's uh, Tuesday fixtures, Senegal, who were 2 1 winners over a woeful Poland? Yeah, I must say, I wasn't too surprised about this. Mm. Um, I mean, I've, to be honest, I was pleased with the result because in the preview show, I'd said that I thought Senegal were good and Poland were rubbish. And I think that played out quite nicely. I don't think Senegal were a great side, but they're really compact, really well organised, good on the counter attack. Um, they've got some incredibly fast players. Um, and Poland kind of just played a really simple, basic 4-4-2. I didn't think Milik and Lewandowski had any relationship whatsoever. And, um, yeah, I think Senegal are just quite exciting. I think the, the kind of side who, were they to progress and, um, you know, get a good side in the next round, uh, England, quite possibly, then, you know, they could really play on the counter-attack and, and cause someone problems. Yeah. A opening goal from uh, where Drissa Gay, well, actually it took a deflection off Cholak and it was given uh, as an own goal because, of course, Russians don't like to recognise Gay goals. I think that's... <laughs> justification. And then the second goal was even more controversial. Nyang. And uh, the Poles were, were furious about this because Nyang had been off the field and wandered on just at the point when uh, Krakowiak was uh, inadvertently hoofing a ball back towards his own, own net, which then Nyang was able to run onto. But mm. you know, are they right? Are there any justification for their complaints? Not really. I mean, I, I do have some sympathy because it's quite an unusual situation, but I'm not sure what the referee... I'm not sure, not sure what anyone can do there. There was a um, moment of hesitation from Bednarik, the defender who came on, uh, mm. who, but I think in that situation, the defender should just hoof the ball away. I mean, yeah. Krakowiak shouldn't be hooking the ball yeah, back. It, I mean, like it was that. a terrible pass back anyway, whichever way you look at it. Uh, but yeah, just absolute mess, which I think sort of summed the performance. Mm. Um, I think 
just to add Michael to what you're saying earlier, I think basically Poland just looked like a team without a heart. There is no one to direct play in that side and they just look really boring and poor basically. What do we make of this group now then, Duncan, now that they've all had a game? I think we can be pretty certain it's going to go down to the last set of games, which will be good, because I think a couple of the other groups will be dead rubber-tastic. So um, it'll be good to see. I don't know. I think any one of those four teams could still get through. I mean, Colombia played an entire match pretty much with 10 men. Mm. Then, you know, they're not going to do that again, you'd think. But, um, yeah, I mean, Senegal are unusual for an African team in that all their wins at World Cups have come against European teams. So... Which, as Michael said a minute ago, if they do play England in the next round, is not good news for, for England. Listeners, you know there's more to football than 52 years of hurt, penalty shootout heartbreak and the inexplicable use of VAR. So, whilst we give you the game-by-game analysis at this World Cup, for a broader cultural and sociological view of the key narratives from Russia, you want to check out the new season of the Game of Our Lives podcast. With twice-weekly episodes throughout the World Cup, David Goldblatt and his co-hosts will be investigating issues like the politics of FIFA and the global industry of World Cup songs and taking a deep dive into national footballing rivalries. If, like us, you were hooked by the excellent first season, you'll already know that host Goldblatt, one of the finest football journalists out there, has a unique curiosity and passion for the beautiful game. And if you didn't, you really should find out what you've been missing. Search for Game of Our Lives with David Goldblatt wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now. Game of Our Lives. Sash, um, am I right in thinking that you're in one of the episodes of this new series? I think I was in the first one. And what were you talking about? I was talking lots about Kaliningrad. What a coincidence, because very shortly, uh, Emma Saunders, a.k.a. the voice of Vicarage Road, will, will be telling us about that very subject. But what in particular about Kaliningrad? Just its history. Uh, it's a... Um it's the cradle of Prussian civilization, if you like. And um, at the end of the Second World War, the, the, the Germans were expelled. Uh, the East Prussia was partitioned between Poland and uh, Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And it, this is the reason why it is left as this cut-off exclave uh, of the Russian Federation now. Uh, of course, for many years, uh, it was closed to the outsiders because it's the main base for the Baltic fleet. It doesn't freeze. Um, and, um, you know, hist- I saw the, the reports recently about... Um, you know, Russians moving rockets there and Poles getting upset about this. But, you know, in my understanding, this was always an area sort of bristling with missiles, if you like, because it is such a strategically important place for the Russian Federation. Uh, so I'm not really surprised. I mean, you could argue that it's an interesting time to start uh, another build-up of weapons, given that everyone's looking and <laughs> watching the World Cup. Maybe Russians are actually building up weapons somewhere else and they just want us to think that they're there. Wow. I was, I was there in 2012, uh, back when you couldn't do this sort of thing, as in I was traveling from Gdansk uh, during the Euro 2012 via Kaliningrad and flying to Kiev. Um, and what struck me, uh, comparing it to Gdansk, uh, was the um, how different things worked out. Because uh, Gdansk was rebuilt after the war, whereas a lot of Kaliningrad, a lot of Königsberg, as it was called back then, was pulled down and dismantled. And this was, um, this was actually a policy because it was seen seen as the, as, uh, the cradle of not just Prussian culture, but Prussian militarism, which mm. led to the, to the two world wars, uh, which I think, and now uh, I think the locals are sort of trying to, you know, trying to sort of reconnect with that history. Um, some are for it, some are against it. Uh, I mean, the, in the early 90s, they used to get lots of German visitors, uh, you know, looking, to, you know, coming back, seeing effectively the homeland of the grandparents, causing extreme, extremely sad. But... I think these days uh, the the area is also trying to um, sort of work itself maybe a new future as well as some sort of free trade area. Um, and but I, 
you know, it's, it's been like that for a few years, but I think they've been struggling to attract business. But there, I heard some um, some talk about maybe making the area around the stadium, which is, by the way, built on the swamp. Mm. Um, and, you know, this whole thing you were hearing on television about it possibly sinking. It's not far, far from the truth. Um, wait, wait, I didn't hear that bit. So the stadium is sinking? They built it on the swamp. They used the wrong type of sand. So the subsidence uh, is um, much greater than expected. Uh, there's a couple of guys in prison for this now um, because basically they use cheaper sand effectively. And so the whole project looks like a bit of a mess, but there is perhaps an idea of maybe turning uh, the area around the stadium to, into some so, sort of like an you know, f- offshore financial zone. But I'm not sure how far those plans have gone. But in terms of football, uh, East Prussia was never a hotbed of football, but Baltica Kaliningrad's ground is the oldest football ground in um in Russia, okay. because that's where A5B Königsberg used to play uh, before 1945. All right, fan, fan, fantastic. As I say, Emma Saunders out there at the moment. Emma, who normally does stadium announcing for Watford, but is emceeing for the duration of the World Cup in Kaliningrad Stadium, as long as it kind of stays above ground level. Uh, producer Ben caught up with her a short time ago to find out how she's been getting on. Yeah, so Dubri Ultra, as they say here, uh, that means good morning. It's one of the many phrases I've picked up in the uh, eight or nine days I've been here. I think it's safe to say I know enough now to get by. So the necessities, um, hello, thank you, goodbye and beer. So it's going well. We've had one match so far in Kaliningrad um, Stadium, where I'm based as a presenter. It was Croatia against Nigeria. Not necessarily the glamour but I think we're very much looking forward to the games that are coming in Kaliningrad Stadium. We've got Spain-Morocco um, on the horizon. Before that, Serbia-Switzerland. I think the Serbian fans are now so- slowly sort of filtering through. So a bit of an atmosphere here again. And then after... It's the big one, England, Belgium. So, yeah, it's been great and I think we've got lots to look forward to. And Emma, has World Cup fever reached downtown Kaliningrad? There's so many South American fans. Brazil aren't even playing here, but every time you go to the fan zone, it doesn't matter what time of day it is, who's playing, there's a Brazil flag and there's loads of people in there jumping up and down, making noise in their bright yellow and green and they create the atmosphere here. And we spoke to the local guys and they think it's because... I'm not sure if they even need a visa at all, but they were basically, they were explaining to us that to get into the country, it's a lot easier for them than it can be, um, well, for the likes of us. Our visa process was, shall we say, involved at times. So there's a lot of South American football fans here, and particularly um, Brazil fans. But the fan zone itself, yeah, it's just what you imagine, really. A sea of colour, people from all over the world bringing along their football shirts, waving their flags, like I said, regardless of the team that's playing. But I have to say, the first Russia game, that 5-0 thumping, full of local people, full of Russians, and we're heading back there again tonight. And I have to say as well, I've invested in a Russian shirt. Beautiful, bright red. The crest looks gorgeous on the Adidas side. I love it. I love it, Ben. Unbelievable. Unbelievable this. Yes, yes, yes. Emma will be doing her thing on the mic Thursday at Kaliningrad Stadium for Serbia-Switzerland. Big game. Ooh. Now, thanks for all that info on Kaliningrad. Broadly speaking, though, Sasha, this has been pretty positive opening weekish uh, to the World Cup. Having loads of reports of super-friendly people in Volgograd picking up uh, picking up English fans at the airports, giving them oranges for the flight, all that kind of thing. Uh, what's been the mood like in, in, in Russia? I, mean, I, th- I think everyone's absolutely delighted about how well it's gone. Uh, I think on the pitch has been great. Um, and off the pitch, um, the numbers of visitors have been absolutely fantastic. I mean, so you've had like 7,000 Swedes in Nizhny Novgorod. You had, 
you have, I think, pretty much half of South America there as well, uh, particularly mm. the Peruvians taking over the place. Um, and this was certainly a theme that carried on from um, last season because the two sets of fans that made the Confederation Cup alive were the Chileans, and the Russians were quite upset they're not there, but the Peruvians replaced them in much greater numbers. But particularly, I think, the guys who came back um, were in greater numbers uh, with, you know, with great expectations of fun, are the Mexicans. There were a couple of thousand Mexicans at the Confederations Cup. They clearly went back home and told all their mates, this is a great place. So all the Mexicans turning up and turning, you know, game against Germany into home game. And one, th- the, but the one set of fans that have been sort of missing um, are the English. Uh, because the English weren't really, uh, they weren't really in Moscow. I mean, you could argue about travel logistics and everything like that. But my Russian colleagues have been asking me, so what are they? Why haven't they come? Well, mm. you know, there, there, there's a lot of reasons. And I think um, one of the main ones is, you know, portrayal in the media, the aftermath of 2016, the scary hooligans, Putin's reputation, etc. But what you did get is various estimates. I mean, from 2,500 to 3,500 England fans turned up in uh, Volgograd. Everything was... Um, you know, from speaking to people, everything was absolutely great. They occupied, there wasn't like a massive gathering somewhere in the city centre, but they certainly packed out all the pubs in the city centre. You know, what there was uh, a pub where perhaps the guys didn't know, but they were actually drinking with the local hooligans who, uh, you know, made them feel up very welcome in a uh, traditional sense, if you like. Uh, but also, I think what the Russians really appreciated was the um, the way that the English visitors approached the history of the place. Because, of course, Battle of Stalingrad is a, possibly the most pivotal point in uh, 20th century uh, Russian or maybe Soviet history, perhaps of the 1917 revolution. And it holds great um, emotionally. It's, it's, it's a very important place for Russia as a nation. And the way uh, that the English um, visitors uh, you know, went to you know, the memorials, the way sort of they, 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 they respected what was there. They respected the, uh, the dead, the great sacrifice of the Russians. They, you know, also, I, I really actually enjoyed... Um, it was a wonderful story uh, that Barney Roney published in The mm. Guardian uh, about his grandfather uh, who was captured by the Russians here and he was wounded and the Russians actually put him in a field hospital, you know, made him better and after the war he returned back home. And I think this whole, um, the, 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 the positivity, I think is possibly even more important uh, as a takeaway from the first week than the performance on the pitch because the Russians here, they showed... Um, a face to the world that perhaps uh, we don't we don't really see it very often because we don't get the tens of thousands of people going to all, all these towns and they don't really get to experience the genuine Russia, which is a place of great hospitality, uh, which is something I talked about beforehand. I think a lot of thinking in this country is still perhaps dominated by Rocky Four and the Cold War. It's not just Drago. That's it's not just Drago, exactly. It's the, the, the Russians are not just Drago. And um, may it carry on because I think uh, it's been very heartwarming so far. Sun, sea, sand and football. Watching the World Cup on holiday sounds like paradise, until you try watching a game online and realise seconds before kickoff that it's blocked. Well, instead of bemoaning your decision to book a trip during a tournament that comes around once every four years, you need to get yourself a virtual private network from bestvpn.com and you'll be able to access the internet freely wherever you are this summer, all for less than the price of a pint. Because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can get 70% off a VPN by visiting bestvpn.com slash podcast. Bestvpn.com will set you up with a VPN in minutes so you can watch the football from your deck chair or by the pool. And when it comes to security, bestvpn.com will also protect your internet activity from prying eyes on open Wi-Fi networks. No matter where you are in the world, you can access your online home comforts with a VPN. So unlock the internet today with bestvpn.com. Find out more and get 70% off by heading to bestvpn.com slash podcast. We've seen every team play at least once 
at least some of the matches we've seen. A, Duncan, what's been the most impressive team? I'm going to throw some quick-fire questions at you. Most impressive team? England. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to pull out the old expected goals metric here, which I know you uh, adore. But I think, you know, they had 2.85, which is more than any other team. Um, They had basically more in the first half uh, against Tunisia than every team other than Brazil did in an entire game. Um, And, you know, they were really good. I mean, there was a couple of spells in the game where it kind of went a bit awry. But, you know, given what we know about England tournaments, they they did well. Okay, Michael? Uh, I really liked Mexico. I think, um, you know, to be an underdog and, and play with such bravery, really, and courage against uh, the reigning world champions was exceptional. And uh, on the subject of expected goals, I thought that was one game where it didn't show up because they had so many kind of three-on-ones they didn't convert into shots, if that makes sense, that I think that would kind of underestimate how good their performance was. Sasha, best imp- oh, most impressive team? I could say Russia, but I would also say Peru. I okay. thought Peru played with fantastic heart and skill against right. Denmark. I think they were very unfortunate to lose that game, but I think they would cause trouble for France. Most uh, impressive individual performance, Sasha? Cheryshev over the two games for really? Russia. Okay. Michael? I'd go for Ronaldo, not just for his yeah. goals, but I thought his all-round game was fantastic. Hard to argue with that, wouldn't you say, Duncan? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, as we talked about before, Ronaldo coming into this tournament had it all to prove and, and what a way to do it. Absolutely. What about best goal then? What's been the best goal so far, Duncan? I mean, I really love that Quintero goal today. I just, you know, the free kick, under yeah, the wall. just under the wall. It's just, it looks brilliant. I mean, it's that is just made for a montage. Imagine how many times that's going to be in a montage at the end of the tournament. Just, mm. yeah. Sasha, you look at your notes. I'll go to Michael. Yeah. Um, I would go for both Nacho and Coutinho because I think they showed lovely swerve in, in different ways. And I think one of the great positives about this tournament has been the ball. You know, previous tournaments have been affected by the ball just flying all over the place, and this one moves a lot in the air, but always in the way that it should do. It's not random late swerves. It allows skill and finesse, and I think it's been one of the best things about the tournament. Well, just to back up Michael's point, I mean, we all remember the ball in 2010 was not a a revered ball. Uh, At this stage um, of the tournament then, two goals from outside the box. Um, It's been uh, seven now. Seven Seven this time. Wow. Wow. Okay. Of course, the the biggest contributor to goals this year has been own goals, which are well on target to take the golden boot, no? <laughs> yeah, the record is six in 1998, and we're already on five after wow. day six of the tournament. So, um, yeah, own goals are having a, a great old time. Okay. Sasha? Favourite goals, Kolarov, uh, free kick, and the Mertens against Panama. Oh, yeah, that was good, wasn't it? There have been some great goals. But Nacho's goal was the best goal. I don't know what you're all thinking about. <laughs> I mean, it was. It sounded like this. Portugal <laughs> Good times. Biggest disappointment, Michael. Not you. I'm not just asking. Uh, thank you. Um, I think just that Colombia red card today. Uh, oh, yeah. I think it just killed that game. Kind of. I mean, actually, it was still an entertaining game, but I felt bad for Colombia because I thought they could have been very exciting. Really, mm. Duncan. Biggest disappointment for you so far. Uh, the efficiency of VAR, possibly, yeah. just <laughs> killing the game with sterilisation. Um, Argent- Argentine coaches, I don't think any yeah, of them... I kind of vow we wouldn't talk about VAR, but it's funny because that efficiency, and they've, they've, they've sorted the time thing out, and it's enabling them to kind of peddle this narrative whereby VAR's working, but it really isn't. And I think anyone who watched the England game can't believe that VAR is working because... It really isn't. And even if it was, that's not the point of football. But let's let's move on. Sasha? Uh, disappointed Nigeria. Utterly incompetent. Right. Just just totally. I don't know what football they were playing at against Croatia. Um, it's just really bad. Okay. Best stat, 
Duncan, what's been the best stat so got far? Got a few. There's one today. Um, Shinji Kagawa, first player who's got a part of the lower body in his name, scored a penalty at the World Cup since Oleg Solenko. Uh, like that one. Um, and just kind of reiterating England's kind of dominance uh, on Monday night, Harry Maguire has had as many touches in the opposition penalty area so far as Neymar. Neymar, by the way, who hobbled out of training. Uh, he obviously got a bit of a clattering in Brazil's... Uh, well, o- Switzerland conceded 19,000. Ten of them were on Neymar. Really? So uh, he went out of training. Of course, that's a bit of a worry. And uh, they're playing on Friday against Costa Rica. OK. For all of that, Wednesday has some interesting games. What are they? These. One o'clock, it's Group B action that kicks things off as Portugal take on Morocco at the... Stadion Luzhniki. Then we're back to Group A as Uruguay take on Saudi Arabia down south at the... Arena Rastov. And then we're back to Group B for Iran-Spain. That's way out east in... Arena Kazan. Very nice. Excellent. Ooh, let's talk about these games. What, what do you fancy talking about first? We kind of did Uruguay-Saudi Arabia uh, way back at the start of the show, so let's put that one to one side. And we'll talk about that Iran game and some of the socio-political implications of, uh, of Iranian success at this World Cup a little bit later on. Let's begin, though, with Portugal's clash with Morocco. Portugal, who's given us, as I mentioned before, one of the moments of the tournament so far. Ronaldo through the line! Cristiano Ronaldo! Ronaldo's free kick for the hat-trick to earn a point against the Spanish. A performance that, from CR7, so good that they finally changed that bust at Madeira Airport. <laughs> Have expectations in Portugal changed following that game? Or well, here is Carlos Santos from Smart Odds. Everyone's expecting a much better Portugal in the second game. Because right now, after what happened against Spain, it's higher. Because I remember speaking to you and telling you that, look, uh, I'm not expecting a lot of Portugal in the first game. And let's be honest, their defensive performance wasn't the best. But just the fact that Ronaldo performed the way he did, I mean, everyone is expecting for much more national team now. Because if you had already some confidence in it and your best player just put a performance like that, then you're in for a treat. Morocco is in Spain. You're expecting Portugal to be a bit more aggressive on the ball. So I'm pretty sure that we're going to have André Silva next to Ronaldo. I'm pretty sure that Portugal will have more possession than, than Morocco. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple of defensive changes. Ricardo Pereira will just sign for Leicester, coming on for uh, Cedric. And uh, even Bruno Alves coming on for uh, Jose Fonte. So those are the changes people are talking about. And they have some logic. They have some logic. Interesting uh, that about the defensive uh changes because that that was what I think the, the big question mark about their performance against Spain wasn't it the Fontaine Pep at the back yes that is true and uh, I don't think they'll be happy with the goal that uh, Diego Costa scored so he kind of outwitted both of them and scored a very fine goal I'm quite looking forward to this game I think Morocco started their open against Iran very brightly couldn't mm. really sustain the tempo but I think uh, maybe showed more attacking uh, invention than I expected because you know I mentioned their good defensive record um, I think obviously the key player is Ronaldo he's probably going to be up against Medi Benatia mm. which is a, a contest we've seen a, a couple of times in the Champions League generally with Ronaldo coming out on top so I think this could be a, a lively game probably the most exciting game of the day We had a go at Sasha earlier on for his predictions about Russia you on the other hand Michael uh, called uh, Morocco the most underrated team in this World Cup Yeah I thought they played really good football in the, in the first half against Iran but um, they didn't get the goal and uh, well, they did. 
but it was well, at the wrong end. They did, yeah, yeah, in the wrong end. So they probably need to get, well, they definitely need to get a result from this. They yeah. probably need to win it because they'll be up against Spain in the final game. But uh, yeah, I, I do think that first game against Iran has probably, well, significantly dented their chances of going through from a very tough group. All right, they'll be without Nuruddin uh, Amrabat here, who's got concussion after being slapped repeatedly by their uh, medical team. <laughs> So I'm quite interested in one of the um, uh, fans of this particular match. Uh, one Sepp Blatter arrived in Moscow today, and uh, I understand Vladimir Putin invited him to come to the match tomorrow. Oh, really? As Is well he as Brazil, some Costa Rica. Kind of favor or something? I don't know. Is he wearing a fake moustache? I don't know, but uh, he should be there. That Ronaldo performance, though, against Spain, can he reproduce that now against Morocco? Do you think, Duncan? I think he probably can, yeah. I mean, he'd, he'd scored three goals from 70 shots before this World Cup, uh-huh. and he scored three goals from four shots in this World Cup. So he seems Is this to... going to be his tournament? I think so. Yeah? I think it could be. I mean, obviously, he's now got presumably two games in the group stages where he can add at least a few more goals. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing... Think back to, I mean, these two teams were both in England's group in 1986 and Morocco actually beat Portugal. Um, it was their first ever win at a World Cup. So there's a bit of history there. I think, I think that's their only meeting they've ever had. So I believe it is. Yeah. Well, the other game from Group B taking place on Wednesday is a very interesting one. Iran, who are actually on top of the group right now, taking on the pre-tournament favourite, Spain. Fascinating clash, as I say, uh, Team Meli's World Cup efforts, though, not the only important campaign going on right now in the Persian game. Shireen Ahmed is an Iranian sports writer and activist based in Toronto. An earlier producer, Ben, spoke to her about whether Iran could do the business against Spain and other matters off-field. Spain is a powerhouse and the way that they manoeuvre a lot of those players play together internationally as well in terms of their clubs, which is not always the case with Team Iran. I mean, you have a couple that play in Persepolis in the Iranian league, but not out. Now, there's challenges that they face as a team that is different than Spain. Like, um, for example, Nike football decided not to give them boots two weeks before the World Cup started. So because of sanctions. And I think there's different challenges that the team faces, but it's not an insurmountable feat to beat Spain, but they'll just have to tactically change a lot. Spain is very, very confident and come out aggressively. Spain also waits till the second half, in my opinion, to really go at blows. So it's going to be a very tough 90 minutes for Iran. Do I think it's possible? Yes, because I think anything is possible, as we've seen with Mexico beating the defending World Cup champions. So a lot of it is passion. And, um, you know, the football gods have a mind of their own. Just how big a sport is football in Iran, Shireen? I mean, are these guys in the national team on the brink of uh, Salah-like levels of stardom and national symbolism? Well, I wish I could say that that was the case. And we don't hear the name of them being household names. And that's just because none are playing in a high level, high profile. I mean, Mohamed Salah has done incredible things at Liverpool and has really made his own name, and not just because of the LFC chance, but has made also Islam quite famous. He does prostrations, he supplicates before he goes on, and these things are interesting and important. There are also things that Team Iran does as well, and always have. Now, what it is is that no specific player comes to mind really but 
as a team and as a whole, the only way that the team has been amplified has been the way that people have commented on how good looking there are. <laughs> now, that doesn't speak to their football prowess. But I mean, they get attention and in, in, in that right. And football is a way of life in Iran. It lives in breathes. The, the people of Iran, Persian people love football so much, so much that, you know, they follow, they're excited. Now, Persian folks all over the world are watching. And, and I saw a video clip of Iranian community in Los Angeles and how they completely were overjoyed. Like we see that joy mirrored all over the world. And Iran is no exception. Um, the, you know, the Tehran Derby is one of the biggest events in Iran. Um, they have their own league. They have stadiums that, that are full all the time. They have, you know, and that leads us to another conversation about who accesses those stadiums. But I think that it's normal to say just because we don't see about it in our day-to-day -day lives doesn't mean that passion doesn't exist there. And you've just touched on it there, Shireen. Uh, the TV cameras picked up a small group of women protesting in the stands during the Morocco game. Um, tell us what the situation is as regards female fans going to football games back home. Yeah, this is the, one of the really beautiful ways that football can amplify campaigns and human rights issues in the world. And we saw Iranian women. Now, just to be clear, this isn't the first time that Iranian women have attended matches at the World Cup. They were in Brazil. Um, they were in South Africa. And the reason for that is that they are not permitted to attend any sporting events, not just football, any sporting events in public places or stadiums in Iran. Now, this ban was enacted in 1979. And there have been people campaigning for over a decade about the injustice of it. Now, the reasoning behind it is that it there's a, it's sort of twofold and it's interpreted differently. It can be interpreted that women, you know, it would be breaking the quote unquote moral code or they would be exposed to some type of vulgarity. But I mean, that's not on the shoulders of those women who simply just want to love football. And I think the important thing here is to remember that these grassroots movements that have been existing um, are not in a vacuum. They're a culmination of things. And women have the strength. And Iranian women are some of the most resilient and incredible. And they do the work. They have been working and campaigning everything from change.org positions to having conversations with higher level executives. I mean, Sepp Blatter in 2013 was quoted as saying he was trying to lobby Iranian government to try to allow it, but it's lip service. In fact, Infantino was actually at the Tehran Derby when 35 Iranian women and girls, the youngest being as young as 13, were detained for trying to dress up as boys to enter the stadium. So this is something else that these women do is they try to dress up as boys simply to access a sport they love, and it's so heartbreakingly unfair. Well, that was very interesting there from uh, Shireen Ahmed. Uh, you can read more from her at shireenahmed.com and you can also hear her on the Burn It All Down podcast. Uh, well, on the pitch then, Iran taking on Spain. Could they? It's been a World Cup of shocks. Could they? I mean, I'd be surprised. They, they might be able to frustrate Spain. I mean, I think there's a very good chance that by the end of this tournament, this will be the largest possession share that one team has because... Obviously, Spain are Spain and Iran are naturally very defensive and having got the win in the first game would be delighted with a nil-nil here. A hilarious thing that uh, Carlos Queiroz said today. Um, I mean, he said, obviously, Iran played to win and uh, that they will try to control the ball as much as possible. <laughs> uh, nice. But there is a problem for Iran as well. Um, lost Chishimi, one of the centre-backs, mm. to a muscle injury. So he's out for the rest of the tournament. 
big game for Sadar Azmun, known as the Iranian Messi, etc. and so on, because he actually plays for Ruben Kazan, who, of course, used this stadium. Home ground for him. Mm-hmm, indeed. Can I just say as well yeah. that um, on Iran... Uh, football journalists often complain about getting like really bad abuse on social media and stuff. But of all the teams I've ever written about, Iranian fans have been the most pleasant and the most friendly and the most polite. I wrote an article about them ahead of the last World Cup that basically said they might not be that rubbish. <laughs> and I just got floods of messages saying thank you so much for taking the time to research about them. So I got quite into following them in that uh, tournament. I'm going to watch this game tomorrow with a couple of... Iranian friends oh, not nice. picked up from social media just just happened to be Iranian friends <laughs> right. in an Iranian restaurant in uh, West London so I'm genuinely which one are you going to, to Michael? I don't know the re- name of the restaurant sorry one of them says it's the best Iranian restaurant in town so I'll take his word for it's it it's funny because uh, most Iranians in London seem to live their life as a perpetual quest to find the best Iranian restaurant <laughs> and every month it changes um, I'll, re- I'll report back but yeah no do because uh, love a bit of Persian food. Persian food's great, isn't oh, it? Yeah. Fantastic. Of course, if you were following them in the 2014 World Cup, you'll recall how close they came to holding the eventual finalist Argentina to a goalless draw. Yeah, until that late messy moment. Mm. So they've got all his kind of Barcelona teammates to contain bet, this time. And I bet no one gave them any chance ahead of that game either. No, they didn't. But I mean, Carlos Quieros has an incredible record in terms of defensive organisation. I mean, he was the, the brainchild really behind Manchester United's great success during kind of mid to late 2000s. He's one of the best defensive organisers, one of the best defensive coaches around. So he has got them really well drilled. And um, I mean, if Spain score early, it could be an exhibition game. But if it gets to 25, 30 minutes and uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Iran frustrated them. But obviously, yeah, I expect I mean, Spain will prevail eventually. Iran's last three goals at World Cups have come in the last 15 minutes. So, if, you know, if they can hang on, which is a big ask, but if they can, yeah possible all right both teams of course having to overcome uh, huge difficulties in the run-up to their opening games I- iran had to find some shoes somewhere and spain of course had to find a manager <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't seem too too bothered about that i mean everything just seemed to roll on more or less if it hadn't been for that pesky ronaldo they'd have been celebrating uh, a fat three points because they look very impressive didn't they in that is, Iberian is, there, is there an argument he might have overfiddled with the subs a little bit do you think maybe that's just a mild sort of criticism of Fierro. Mm. Okay. Costa looked good. Spain looked good, basically. Even if they didn't win, they looked good. I think the best team so far. That Costa goal was really good. I mean, it wasn't even the second best goal of the game, but to outwit both the defenders and show your strength and provide a really good finish, I thought was just outstanding. To elbow Pep in the throat and get away with it. Well done. (laughs) Some of their battles over the years in the Madrid derbies were just, I mean, disgusting, but quite brilliant (laughs) to watch. They're just complete bastards, both of them. Nicely put. All right. Well, that's uh, our thoughts on Wednesday's action. But what are the odds on those games? Of course, Paddy Power here to tell us, speaking to producer Ben. Thank you, Jimbo. I've got Lee Price on the line. Lee, we're looking ahead to Wednesday's games now. It's the return of Portugal and the return of Morocco. Ronaldo got a hat-trick in the first game. Our hopes high that he might do the same thing again here. Yeah, uh, so Ronaldo to score a hat-trick again in this game is just 20 to 1. Usually we're looking at around 50 to 1 for a player uh, scoring the treble, but they've been slashed in after the first game antics. Uh, your boys, Morocco, your tip pre tournament need a result here. They're 5 to 1 to get the win. Portugal are 8 to 13, and the draw is 13 to 5. Uh, let's stick in Group B then. The evening game is Iran versus Spain. Iran are top of the group. Can they stay there? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I know David De Gea's uh, thrown them in, but this one, odds-wise, is a foregone conclusion. Iran are 18-1 to 1 
to get consecutive victories and pretty much secure a place in the next round. Spain on one to seven. Uh, massive favourites for this. 13-2 for the draw might be interesting. And uh, the game at four o'clock is Uruguay versus the mighty Saudi Arabia. Could Uruguay score more than five here? They weren't too impressive in their opening game. <laughs> they, they, were, they weren't too impressive, but Saudi Arabia were even less impressive. Uh, Uruguay really can score more than five goals, and they really should. This could get double figures, to be honest with you. Uh, Uruguay are just one to seven to win, which is short. Ben Ryan, that's the same price as Spain to beat Iran. Saudi Arabia 19 to 1 to win this fixture. Uruguay uh, 7 to 1 to draw. To score more than five goals, you get as low as 3 to 1, which is very short. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com. It is 18 plus only, begambleaware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. You can tweet us uh, at the Totally Show on Twitter with your questions and that kind of thing. Also, we're on Facebook where we've got all sorts of videos, quizzes, competitions and more. Most importantly, though, we have another podcast coming up for you straight after the final whistle on Wednesday night. So hopefully you'll be joining us for that, possibly on Thursday morning, if that's more convenient for you, listener. Meantime, many thanks for being with us this evening. Sasha Gurionov. Pleasure. Duncan Alexander. Thank you, James. Uh, followable at Ollie Sailor. Ollie Sailor. For all your stat needs. And Michael Cox at Zonal... Underscore marking. Right. Still mm. haven't got that one back. No, sadly not. Uh, Sasha, you're grrr. Slasher, four R's. Slasher with four R's. That's a lot of R's. Grr. Mm. All right, listener. See you tomorrow. Bye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. Subscribe now and get the latest episode delivered right to your phone for free. Supporting your team at the World Cup can be a phenomenal experience. But then Beckham boots Simeone, Lampard's goal isn't given or someone puts on an England shirt and misses a penalty. The highs, more often than not, come with lows. And that's a little bit like life, really. So while we're all supposed to be buzzing with World Cup excitement and lapping up all this football, all that VAR and all those Nigeria kits, remember that someone close to you might be going through one of life's tougher times. Every day on average, 12 men take their own life in the UK. That's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. Scary, huh? But that's part of the problem. Many of us still feel mental health and suicide are taboo topics, and this can stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it most. That's why we're working with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. We here at the Totally Football Show believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the ups and the downs, the glorious wins and the embarrassing red cards, the good days and the bad. So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provides a free, confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. They've also got a website which is packed with the kind of info you need if you or any of your mates are having a rough one. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.